1: came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself
0: was attacked this morning by a faceless coward.
1: And freedom will be defended.
0: Over his 30-year career, Detective Chief Inspector Perry Benton has investigated hundreds of serious crimes, including countless homicides across London. His commitment to his victims and their families is something to be admired, as he has spent countless hours uncovering the truth behind some of the most prominent investigations of the last 10 to 15 years. In this episode of Protect and Serve, the soon-to-be-retired Detective Chief Inspector talks us through some of his most challenging and emotional cases, including that of the arrest and conviction of Sarah Sands, a mum who, when she found out her three sons had been sexually abused by a convicted pedophile, took the law into her own hands and ensured that this man would never commit his offences again. On an autumn evening in 2014, Sarah Sands left her masonette in London, armed with a knife and a hoodie covering her face. She only had one thing in mind. Sarah walked to a neighbouring block of flats, and to the home of an elderly man, Michael Plested, a 77-year-old convicted pedophile. Once at Plested's address, she stabbed him eight times in what was later described as a determined and sustained attack. Plested bled to death from the wounds that had been inflicted upon him by Sands. At the time of his death, Plested was facing further charges. He was accused of sexual offences against young boys on the estate in Silvertown where he lived. Chief Inspector Perry Benton talks us through the challenges of investigating such a crime where a mum was protecting her children, but a man had been murdered as a result and a serious crime needed to be investigated. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And, you know, we've been so very lucky throughout this first series of the podcast to speak to some fascinating police officers in various different roles. And um, homicide is one of the greatest areas of investigation because uh, the victims of such events of, of such offences have no voice. And there are individuals that represent those people so that ultimately to get them justice and to get answers for family and friends and loved ones uh, who have lost someone close to them. And one of those gentlemen that has been investigating homicide matters and complex crime throughout his 30 year career is Chief Inspector Perry Benton of the Metropolitan Police. And it's I'm incredibly honoured to have him here this evening with me to talk about his career, which is just coming to an end, but he's got a very exciting future ahead of him outside of policing. Perry, good evening and welcome to the podcast.
1: Good evening, Oliver. Thank you so much for inviting me. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to uh, sort of share my stories. And it's been a fascinating career. Um, it's a career that I've loved, you know, dedicated myself to sort of helping um the community and trying to get justice for families has been um yeah obviously so rewarding and um something I'll never ever
0: forget it's remarkable and and what I'd like to do at the start of my podcast is is wind back the clock 30 years to when you first joined policing and and, and and the question has got to be why policing what chose you to pursue such an incredible vocation
1: so um ever since I was a young boy I've always wanted to help people um I had no history of policing in my family um a lot of my colleagues that I've worked with over the years um are kind of generational police officers and things like that but I had no one in my family that I sort of could look up to or anything like that. and uh, it was just a, a, a I've always wanted to be a police officer I always wanted to help people um and it's just something it's always been in with me and I sort of remember from a young age meeting local sort of Female police officers that would work, walk around the streets, and they used to pop into houses. And I remember, in particular, one a woman called Anne who used to pop in to visit my parents. And it kind of just drew me in then. And you know, I've done volunteer work and charity work over the years, and and as I say being a police officer was all I ever wanted to do. So I joined the police as a special constable when I first started because um, you know, not being the most academic as such, it, I thought it was a good way of learning about the role and. Hopefully also showing that I'm keen and, and hopefully help me, um, you know, in my aspirations to actually joining the police force as a regular, which which happened a long, long, long time ago now. Uh,
0: it's it's remarkable. And one of the one of the things that always interests me is, is that families respond in different ways, especially extended family. When they find out or understand that a member of the family, either close or one of the extended members of the family is joining the police. And often the response to that can be varied. Some supportive, some slightly concerned as to what that means in terms of loyalties and if they do something wrong. What was the support like for you in joining policing?
1: Um so my, my, my parents were incredibly proud. Like I say, not having anyone in the police force, they were incredibly proud. They my mum I remember my mum showing pictures off of me when I was in uniform, you know, to all her family and friends and things like that. So they were incredibly proud. I think they learned quite quickly um, the dedication that I put into the role in that I would work a lot of hours. Even even in the beginning, I would work extending hours. You know, as a special constable, it's all volunteer work. So I was volunteering for lots of different shifts all the time. And then, um, yeah, so they were incredibly proud and, and they recognised I was always at work a lot and um, they were just very supportive in that respect.
0: So tell us about your time at the Academy. You joined in 1994... What was walking through the gates of Hendon like in the mid-90s? Tell us about the training experiences.
1: So so I joined when uh, Hendon Training College was a residential training programme. So there was a 20 weeks at Hendon. And if I'm honest, it was um, amazing. It was an amazing experience because you were forced to sort of hold those standards every day. You know, you had to go on parade every day. You had to have your uniform checked every morning, your shoes polished and clean. So the sort of professional standards were sort of instilled with you in day one. And I know that's something that's kind of been eroded over the years, and it's changed over the years. Training has changed with technology. I know there's a lot of learning now online and things like that. But you know, walking in as a fresh-faced sort of 20-year-old, I say never been to university or anything like that. That's the only sort of thing that I can maybe say it would be similar to. In that you're meeting people for the first time, you're then living with these people, you're eating with these people, um, you're obviously working with these people, you're all learning you know different um you know all learning the same sort of subjects and course matters and and you're all then helping each other and you have obviously tests to do and it was a regular weekly test which you kind of had to pass um I felt a little bit obviously with my special constable background initially I thought I was oh you know I was maybe a little bit more experienced than some of the people who had no no knowledge about policing but like I say everyone kind of just helped each other um and it was just yeah it was a fantastic learning environment and I certainly learned a lot about myself. You know, like I say being away from home for the first time, um, it, it, it sort of, you know, helped. I suppose shape me the way I am now. And um, it, it, you know, from from minute one, I was in love with policing. I was in love with trying to help people. I was in love with trying to get, you know, justice for people. Um, and you know, I've had to say an amazing career as a as an investigator and as a detective. And it was quickly apparent to me that that is my love. You know, when we were doing sort of uniform kind of um, police officer sort of exercises and things like that. Whilst I enjoyed it, you know, in terms of actual investigation, trying to work out what had happened to something, why it had happened, who was responsible, how could we prove it? That was, you know, quite quickly in my career and even in training days was was what I loved doing. The,
0: the vocation of the Office of Constable is an incredibly complex one in terms of the amount of legislation, policy and procedure that one has to be aware of to be able to execute the job effectively. How did you find absorbing that side of the academia part of policing? Was it something that you you took well or you had to work hard at to be successful at?
1: I had to work really hard. So yeah, like I say, I, I did okay at school in terms of when I was at school, it was GCSEs. Um, but then I left school at 16 because I applied to join the police when I was 16 in my naivety and got told, sorry, you're too young. Um, you need to <laughs> sort of maybe do something else first. And it was yeah. it was at the time when the police cadets was um, had just ended. So because again, you know, in the early nineties, um, the metropolitan police stopped using having a cadet system. And otherwise, I'd have hopefully joined that. But, so I actually joined um, a bank because when I left school, that was kind of the easiest thing to do. You kind of apply for different sort of um, national banks, and I actually worked for like NatWest Bank for sort of four and a half, nearly five years um because um, of my brother because he worked there but worth training at Hendon was I found quite difficult like I say um the the, the, the lessons were sort of coming fast and, and and um hard and fast you know in terms of there was so much to do so much to learn you know the yeah. law whilst as I say, I've done some training special you know doing it full-time for 20 weeks there was so many different topics to cover you know so many different um ways of learning Learning around, you know, we did role plays. and say so we did exams. Obviously, there was lots of um, homework. There was lots of work to be done in the evening. Then I had the sort of officer safety training, sort of the physical aspect of of the training around officer safety training, around how to use batons and handcuff techniques and things like that. Um, and then we had lots of marching practice as well, because again, the professional standards of the police in, in 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 Hendon at the time, you know, it was all around the passing out parade and, and setting those standards and trying to instill into. Yeah all the new officers, you know, the standards that you're meant to uphold. Um, and and, and so, so I found it quite difficult to start with, but um, it was
0: rewarding at the same time. So you marched out the gates of Hendon in 1994 to begin your operational policing experiences. Where were you posted to and what was it like in those first few weeks being on the road, active police officer and actually doing what you trained to do in real life, bearing in mind you'd had that experience as a special
1: So, so I was posted to, uh, in those days, it was divisions, so we're now sort of borough based policing, but at the time it was divisions, so I was posted to Barkingside Division, and at the time there was five stations under Barkingside Division, you had Barkingside, Woodford, Chigwell, Waltham Abbey, and Loughton, some of those are now part of Essex Police, so I was posted to Barkingside Division, and initially was posted out of Loughton, so it was quite residential. It's right by sort of Epping Forest on the um, on the borders of, of Essex. So some people might say it's kind of sleepy London rather than, you know, hustle and bustle of a city like or town like Hackney or anything like that. But um, I had a really good team working around me. There was a lot of experience that you could, you could use. Um, but I always remember, you know, one time that I got into um, an area car driver with a, a an officer who's actually passed away now a guy called chris john baptiste who's, who's an amazing um you know black officer who who i remember getting in the car with him he was so experienced and i remember getting in the car saying um and he said what do you want to do i said i want to go and invest somebody and he said well where do you want to go and i was like well i don't know and that was my naivety and i always remember that from one of my first days in that i was so naive so keen but so naive it's like, i just want to go and arrest someone and he's like well, where do you want to go and it's like you know and then he taught me how to do things and different ways of obviously identifying when people have done things or investigations that you can do and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, at those times you you had teams, the teams are quite large in terms of officers numbers. I mean, I know over the years um, the police force has gone up and down in terms of recruiting and things like that. But I remember at the time you had quite a lot of officers on the teams. Um, we had a, what we call street duties training course as well. So you weren't kind of just thrust into it on the streets. You had what we yeah. call street duties program where you had so some senior officers, sort of spend sort of 10 weeks with you again teaching you the basics of how to maybe stop vehicles safely, how to stop and search people, you know, how to go and report things. And there were you sort of, sort of almost like the bread and butter of your early career where you'd, you know, things like sudden deaths, you'd be, you'd be the officers that would be sending to the to the, the sort of incidents like that again to give you the experience and the opportunities. Um so I I I spent um about 18 months in, in as a uniform constable. But as I said earlier, I I quickly realised that I was an investigator, and that was my passion. So I remember going up to sort of our crime desk, even as a police officer in uniform, saying, I've just reported this assault, can I keep it to investigate? And in those days, normally what happened is they get passed to CID or to another department to investigate. But I would always ask, could I keep that investigation to?" because I wanted to investigate it? I like the challenge of, you know, taking the statements from the witnesses or the victims, identifying potential suspects and interviewing them, you know, gathering mm. any other evidence you need to gather. Um, I, I love that challenge. And, and um, so quite quickly on, I was then um, attached to um, a sort of CID team as big crimes officer. So I would be given the lower level investigations to look at, but then yeah. also being able to use the experienced officers um, and, and, and learn from them, which was invaluable. And it's kind of almost been like, you know, the kind of thread that's run through my career, working with, you know, excellent officers, learning from people, and then I've now got to that point in my career where I'm now giving back to the officers that are maybe less experienced than me. And and it's almost like I have to pinch myself that I've now got to that point in my career where I'm now giving back. And I'm things that I would, in my mind, think, oh, that's quite basic or quite straightforward, you know, I'm finding out that these officers have never had that experience or never had to do mm. something like that. And and it's actually really rewarding watching, you know, being able to give that knowledge and experience back. And, and I've loved that, and certainly in the last, you know, four or five years of my career, sort of in the last few, four or five years, you know, being an, an SIO and a homicide command, you know, again, teaching the less experienced officers about certain aspects, what they need to do, how, how do we need to solve, improve this murder or that investigation? That's, you know, I've loved, I've loved doing that now.
0: So in the first 18 months whilst you're in general duties, you know, riding alongside area car drivers, were there any Periods in that in that eighteen months where you you were exposed to those first moments of danger, where you identified that policing offered challenging circumstances, which you had to try to deal with very quickly.
1: Yeah, so I mean, as I say working in uh, Barkingside Division at the time, you know, like I say, it was quite outer London, so that you did come across sort of violent incidents in you know in pubs and stuff, things like that. I mean, I've been really fortunate in my career, and some people might even almost like you know laugh in that. I actually can only really recall one incident where I was involved in any kind of almost like physical contact with anyone where we end up stopping two people in a car and it end up becoming almost like what you describe as a roll around on the floor. Um, I mean, the other times where I've gone to report what we call suspects on premises where there's been, where there's potentially a burglary and the people involved in that burglary are actually still on the scene and I remember getting involved in a chase and detaining um, somebody coming away from a burglary with sort of my officers, and we we had the uh, police helicopter up at the time, which helped us track where the guys went. Um, but I was, you know, quite fortunate in my career, but partly because of the roles that I was doing, that I, I you know, I never personally got involved in sort of the the, the violent nature. Obviously, investigations-wise, I did, and and that was the thing. I I would always class myself as almost like a talker. So if ever I ever yeah. came across somebody being aggressive, um, you know, or was really upset in any situation. I would use my, you know, communication skills and actually just talk about it and, and, and deal with it that way.
0: The greatest skills of a police officer is the is the art of communication. It's obviously a skill that you've developed so well over your career because it's the one skill that can get a police officer into trouble, but equally it's one that's most importantly can get them out of trouble. Um, it, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah. So, like I say, I, I, quite early on, I loved investigating, and I realised that you know to investigate any incident, you have to be able to talk to people. You have to be able to interview victims and sort of gain their trust and their confidence to gain, get, get as much evidence out of them. So I, I trained quite early on in terms of, you know, interviewing witnesses, um, what we call achieving best evidence. So it's interviewing young and vulnerable uh, witnesses as well. Um, and so I, that was my thing, I loved interviewing witnesses, I loved interviewing um, victims and obviously interviewing suspects and and also one of the most rewarding things for me was b- when I became a detective constable. Was becoming a family agent officer. That was something I was so keen to do because it's it's you're dealing with families that are going through the most traumatic incident ever, and you're supporting them in terms of giving them updates around the investigation. But also, families have the most information sometimes that actually help the investigation. So it's one of the most worthwhile roles that I've ever done in my career, and it's something that again helps with that communication because you're meeting families who are you know um, who are distraught. Are, um, grieving, who, who are you know want answers, want justice, and you've got to be the sort of public face of the investigation team of the police, and they're looking to you for answers. I've always promised my families that I would always do the best for them, and that's something I've done from when I was either detective constable or an SIO detective chief inspector, and it's something that you know the families really um, you know they they appreciate that because you're being honest, you know you're not giving them false hope, or, or and and you know I've worked on some fantastic teams. And achieve some amazing results and and justice for families it's never ever going to bring their loved one back but you know it it sometimes does give them some closure and does give them some answers and and it it is about that communication and how you communicate with people
0: so and a great point here perry's when you're a family liaison officer you're dealing with a lot of emotion a lot of grief and a lot of delivering often really distressing news to families how do you separate yourself and not get emotionally attached to those situations it must be really difficult I, um,
1: I, I I probably do get emotionally attached. I think it, it's impossible not to separate it. I mean, I've, I've dealt with well over like 100 investigations and maybe even nearly 200 investigations uh, because I'm in a unique position within the Metropolitan Police in that I was a detective constable on the homicide command. I was also a detective sergeant where I was a case officer um, managing cases, going to court on the homicide command. I was also a detective inspector. Um, investigating officer on the homicide command and also a detective chief inspector SIO. So I've done everything on a homicide investigation that anyone would be able to do. I did all like what we call the core roles, whether it's CCTV, family liaison officer, exhibits officer, telephones officer, you know, say case officer, leading cases at, at the central criminal court or other courts, you know, so I've I've done the full range and it's, it's impossible not to get sort of attached to the cases, you know, because I've dealt with some horrendous cases and know um and 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 i as i say you you always remember always remember pieces of them you know i've 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 seen so many cases where i've seen you know homicides captured on cctv um you know i've got you know i've got cases where a a mother was killed by her ex-partner um who was basically kind of stalking her and he stabbed her it was on front of CCTV and he just walked away calmly. And, and we had to go and speak to that family that, that same night because they turned up at the police cordon and hadn't seen their their mother. And they described what she was wearing about a yellow coat. And that happened in Ilford a few years ago. And, and unfortunately that was the woman. And so I remember vividly going to speak to that family. I've also had a family where um, they lived above the tattoo shop um, and in, in Enfield. And Um, unfortunately the tattooist set fire to the shop and it set fire to the flat above. And unfortunately, a oh, wow. um, father, a much loved father, died in in the fire, and the mother and daughter and her daughter's boyfriend um, were severely burnt. And I remember helping them, going to visit them in hospital, where the daughter and the mother had lost um, all their belongings. At the time, I managed to go through and contact John Lewis, and John Lewis were phenomenal, and they actually gave the mother and the daughter some clothes, handbags, shoes, you know, just some basic items for the family, just to get them back on their feet again. And so those sorts of cases. You know, always stick with you, and it's and it's it's impossible to sort of detach. I think I've just over the years kind of learned to live with it. But you know, you just yeah, you just deal with it. Um, you know, I I quite often you know shed a tear or two at the end of court cases in court, where especially if you you're listening to the victim impact statements that the family have written regarding how the murders affected them, um, and some some of the cases where you talk about young children being killed. Um, you know, it's it, it's heartbreaking because you you know even as a just as on the human level it is heartbreaking and and like I say you know that no matter what you've done whether you've got justice whether you've got convictions it's never going to bring the, the loved one back and and that's the thing that sort of even today upsets me that you know the young people in, in the world don't realise how fragile life is you know I've dealt with you know so many like gang related murders if you like where young young males are killing each other and and they don't realise how fragile life is. Um, it, it, even you know today, every time like whenever when I read the news, you know in the last few weeks about you know the two year sixteen-year-old boys that were killed a mile apart and things like that, it, it breaks my heart that, that people still don't realise that that you know that their life is too short and it should be cherished. And um, it's hard to separate, um, if I can just say like that, really.
0: No, it's really very, really very valid points. And I think the the most important point to that one is is that. There's nothing wrong with displaying human feelings even as a police officer. You know, it's natural and often I think people worry that, you know, we've got to be seen to be strong. But there are there are times when, when, when emotion is going to take over because these cases you work so closely on, you work so closely with the families and it's hard you know i would suggest it's quite normal to have those emotions so it's um it's fascinating insights into certain, in kind of managing the emotion of dealing with families in those cases what support mechanisms are in place to help officers deal with such regular trauma
1: so so there is um so if you're um say a family liaison officer um we have on teams and i was one at a point when I was at the rank that we have what we call family and coordinators so they are like, almost like welfare officers that should regularly speak to their officers to see um what deployments they're dealing with and, and if they need any assistance we also have what we call occupational health where there's like uh, you know potential counseling available and, and obviously it's down to line managers and, and senior managers to sort of manage the welfare of their staff to see to spot the warning signs um yeah. and, and in any one particular case you know I've had you know officers where potentially I, sh- I should have spotted some signs earlier and should have supported them earlier um and but it you know there's obviously a, a small element of personal responsibility but Go back to that point, you know, at the end of the day, police officers are all human, you know, I know, you know, sometimes the police get a, a, a bad um, public, you know, the public um, view of the police at the moment isn't maybe at the highest. But, you know, I can assure you and anyone sort of listening to this that, you know, a vast majority, you know, 99% of, of police officers get up every morning, and go to work every day to help people, to make a difference, to make, you know, mm. London and if not other cities throughout the country and if not the world a safer place, you know. Yes, there's some issues which has been highly documented, and and, and I know the new commissioner is currently looking into dealing with things like that. But I can tell you that myself, the teams that I'm proud to have worked on, and a vast majority of the colleagues that I know, all get up in the morning to help people, and they are human. You know, they've got families, they've got children, they've got lives. Um, they want to help people. Do we get it right every time? Probably not. You know, um, but we try. You know. And as I say, because we're human, we make mistakes, but we do try. And, and and every you know homicide case that I've dealt with over the last sort of, I spent more than half my service on homicide. Uh, you know, I, I spent about probably about seventeen years more than half my service on homicide. And I can promise every case that I dealt with, I tried my best for every case, whatever role I played on that investigation, um, whether it's leading teams or working with other you know colleagues when I was you know young in service, I tried my best. And and you know. Um, and that's all we can do. That's all we can promise people, and that's all we try to do.
0: Let's look at some of these cases now. As you said, you've spent a vast majority of your career in homicide, and you know some of the greatest insights that we have on our podcast is looking at some of the cases that officers have worked on. And you are no different in terms of the high-profile investigations that you've been very lucky to lead on and be part of. The first one I wanted to talk about has been very much at the front of uh, front of mind recently in the media, and that is the case of the arrest and conviction of Sarah Sands for the murder of an ind- of, of a male person who was found to have sadly um, sexually assaulted her children. This is
1: 32-year-old Sarah Sands. In a few moments' time, she will stab a man
0: to death with a knife that she is carrying underneath her clothing. Scotland Yard detective DCI Perry Benton investigated the killing.
1: I'm not condoning what she did because you, you can't take the law into matter, into her own hands. She should have allowed justice to sort of take its place, which was happening.
0: Talk us through that case. It must have been an incredibly difficult one in terms of a mother acting and defending her children, but equally, obviously, you know, not allowing people to take the law into their own hands. A very, very difficult case. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, so um, this was obviously an incident which happened in uh, November. It was actually 2014, so it was a number of years ago, but it's, uh, it's again, only recently came back to the national news because of um, Sarah's sort of um, media work that she's done to try and um, get some laws changed which I'll sort of touch upon but yeah I mean I at the time I was actually a detective sergeant I was the case officer for this investigation so it was my responsibility to make sure that all the lines of inquiries that needed to be done were done that um, all the evidence was then served on the Crown Prosecution Service and the defence and that whatever was needed for any trial um, um, in terms of witnesses being taken to court um, and all the evidence being presented in court, that was my responsibility. So, um, I mean, first off, it, it, it's one of those cases that will always stay with me. Um, you know, you've got the the police officer head on in that it's a murder. So you've got to obviously investigate that murder. You've got to get justice for, you know, um, the deceased and and any family. But you've also then got the element, the human element in that, you know, it was quite apparent quite early on um, what had happened. and. Basically, you know, um, around the 29th of October, 2014, um, Sarah Sands made an allegation against a male called Michael Plested um, of sexual assault um, on, um, and that was investigated by the local police and it, they'd done a fantastic job. Um, they interviewed the witnesses, they gathered the evidence. They then arrested Mr Plested quite um, quickly um, on the 2nd of November, so within about three, three days, he was arrested. Uh, he was interviewed and denied the offences and was then charged by the police um, with a number of offences. He was then remanded by the police into custody to go to court the next day. Um, and he went to Magistrates Court, Thames Magistrates Court, on the 4th of November. Um, unfortunately, um, even though the police had asked for remand in custody due to his um, long offending history, the Magistrates Court released him on bail. Um, back to live in his block of flats which was literally around the corner from where Sarah lived with her children and as you can probably imagine that obviously caused a lot of distress to Sarah and her children, they were scared that they would have to see him daily whilst the court case was going on um, and then what happened was he then attended um, a Crown Court and uh, on the 18th of November and again he was readmitted to bail um, and the case was continuing through the criminal justice process. Um, A couple of days later, um, a further allegation of sexual assault was made against him. Um, Mm. And this was was basically by um, Sarah's eldest son. And that was reported to police. And the police, um, again, arrested him. And uh, he was um, interviewed. And basically, because of the circumstances, Um, The CPS at the time wanted um, all the sort of complainants, um, evidence reviewed together. So again, he was released released, um, into the public. Um, And then basically, because of the allegations and because of what had happened, and because of the fact that he was living near to Sarah and her children, um, on the 28th of November, um, Sarah basically um, went to her flat which she hadn't been living at for a few days because he was living in the area. She'd moved out, but it was a house that she'd been waiting to live in. Um, She'd been waiting for her own premises with her children. and It was local authority premises and she'd been waiting for that for a long time and she didn't want to give it up but because obviously what had happened, she felt she couldn't live there anymore, especially with him living so close. So on the 28th of November, she basically went home. Um, I think she drunk some some alcohol. She armed herself with a large knife uh, and a hammer she then went to uh, Michael Preston's flat and confronted him. Um, a, an argument had taken then took place, um, and then Sarah stabbed him a number of times. Wow. Um, yeah. So Sarah then took a took a taxi back to her um, to a friend's house, and um, whilst talking to the friends and and having a drink, she basically confessed to them what she'd done, and she actually had with her her bloodstained clothing and the knife. Um, They were obviously shocked and didn't necessarily believe it. So they phoned the police um, to report what had happened. Um, And they also then attended Limehouse Police Station. And police officers spoke to Sarah at the police station and she said she'd hurt somebody because he'd touched her kids. Um, And so she said she stabbed him. Um, Officers then went to his address in um, Drew Road in in Newham, and they found his lifeless body there. So um, Sarah was then obviously interviewed he he'd actually sorry, he'd, stu- he'd suffered um, um eight stab wounds. Um, but Sarah was interviewed and she made partial admissions and um she was subsequently charged and went to court. Um and as I say, the court case was really difficult because you know I have a lot of empathy and, and sympathy for the children. And you know, we worked um we worked with Sarah's family quite a bit in the in the early stages of the investigation because you know, looking after the children who were all going to school at the time where were the children going to live, with mother in prison. Um, and so I know that Sarah's mum and dad looked after the children in, in a small premises. So we worked with the local authority to see if we can get extra support for them. Um, Mr. Plestead, um, who was deceased, he didn't have any immediate family. So there was no sort of immediate family that we had to sort of have any long, detailed conversations with. We found a distant relative who lived quite far away, but they didn't want any sort of contact or anything to do with the investigation whatsoever. Um, So we then had to investigate the incident. We had to investigate homicide like we would any investigation. We had to look at the circumstances of what had happened, why it happened, um, and and gather as much evidence as we could, because we didn't know if we were going to have a trial. So with every investigation we have to do, we have to look at all the evidence you know, closed circuit television, CCTV, you know, forensic evidence, telephone evidence, you know. We know on this occasion that Sarah took some taxis, so we had to obviously identify the taxes that she used and interview those. We had to interview the people that Sarah had confessed to and, and take statements from them to find out what she'd said to them. Because again, we didn't know whether, you know, what Sarah's kind of defense was going to be in court, whether she was going to blame other people or if anybody else was involved. You know, we had to keep a very much an open mind. With all our investigations, we have to keep an open mind at all times about the circumstances. And like I say, gather as much evidence as we can. Um, so we gathered all the evidence and we then subsequently um, had this trial at the Central Criminal Court. Um, and, you know, Sarah pleaded not guilty to homicide, but she um, but she basically claimed uh, loss of control um, as, as her defense. Um, mm. And um, so we, we had a trial at the Central Criminal Court um, between the 23rd of June 2015 and 10th of July. Um, and various experts were called, all the evidence was called. And, and Sarah was, um, she was found not guilty of murder, but she was convicted of manslaughter by loss of control. And she was sentenced to three and a half years imprisonment. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the trial judge, again, it was, you know, it was one of those cases where it was really emotional for everybody involved because like I said a minute ago, you know, you've got the, the, the legal side of it, the law side of it around homicide and w- what she had done. But you had the human element around why she'd done it, the impact on her children. But because of obviously the, 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 the children being the victims of the sexual assault, what was reported in the media at the time was that it was just a mother that had killed a paedophile. And unfortunately, because of that, because the judge, the trial judge sentenced her to sort of three and a half years, um, it was then subsequently referred to the Court of Appeal to consider whether the sentence was unduly lenient. And that was because of my understanding is that the public, some members of the public had complained about the sentence, not knowing the full facts because it wasn't allowed to be reported. And I think if it's one of those cases, again, if, if the public was aware of the actual full facts, would anyone have appealed? Um, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's one of those we will never know. But because of that, on the 22nd of January 2016, um, the Court of Appeal looked at it and actually decided that it was possibly unduly lenient. And so they increased her sentence to seven and a half years in prison. Um, And so Sarah's served that time in prison. She's come out now. I know that she's recently done some sort of interviews in the media because one of the things, one of the the key aspects of this investigation was that Michael Plested actually had a different name. His name um, officially was a guy called Robin Malt, and he was a convicted pedophile. He was what you would class as a predatory pedophile, and he basically groomed, Sarah's children without, you know, any sort of um, anyone knowing. He used to work in a brick of brack shop um, in, in one of the sort of newsagents nearby. And he'd have like, he basically employed Sarah's young children there to help him. And they loved it because they loved the independence. They loved potentially a, a little bit of money. So when he started inviting them back to her, his flat near where Sarah lived, she thought nothing of it. Sarah used to even, you know, make food for him because she felt sorry for him. But she didn't obviously know and no one knew that in reality, he was basically grooming the children. Um, and so, um, but one of the things that say Sarah is looking to do is campaigning around that, how can people be able to be convicted with serious offenses and then quite easily just change their surname, change their name and almost like live a new identity. And I know that's something that's being looked at in you know in parliament and things like that. And it's something that I know that Sarah was quite keen on. So, I mean, it's a really traumatic case. It's one of those cases because, you know, I'm now, I'm a parent, um, I mean, I was a parent at the time. And it's one of those cases where you kind of sort of say, well, what would you do? You know, what would you do if it's your child that's been, um, you know, sexually assaulted or assaulted? Uh, how would you be able? To, what would you? How would you be able to cope? You know, as I say, the legal side is that you can't take justice into your own hands, and the justice system was still ongoing. You know, he was still being prosecuted, um, but I think you know, obviously, I'm not. I can't speak for Sarah directly, but um, you know, the fact that she then got told about her third son, her eldest son, being the victim as well. I think that kind of appears to be the tipping point where she she obviously did lose control and, and, and obviously took matters into her own hands.
0: And, and it's incredible because you think about the guilt and the anger that she was experiencing after finding out that all three of her children had been the victims to what can only be described as an abhorrent act by an individual that um, was being investigated. But like you say, the importance of your job in remaining impartial and ultimately having to do what it is that you do which is investigating the circumstances of a violent and unexpected death the the, the one question i had in terms of the crime scene you know you, you described the fact that this chap was stabbed eight times those crime scenes must be quite challenging in terms of quite a confronting scene that you're having to deal with and process how do you how do you set yourself to be able to manage what you're looking at process it do you compartmentalise it? Do you, are you able to move on from crime scene to crime scene because they're quite, you know, um, traumatic ordeals to try and manage?
1: Yeah, I think I think like you say, it's probably compartmentalising it because, you know, I've I've been to, you yeah, know, probably over hundred crime scenes, whether it's stabbings or shootings. You know, I've 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 had to take fingerprints from a, a male who killed his girlfriend in Leighton. Um, who then jumped in front of a train, and and so basically there was a pile of almost like mush on a post mortem table, and I had to take his fingerprints. And I, you do carbent inside it, you know. It's something that that sort of sort of thing will stay with me forever. And so for like this particular case, you know, there was a lot of blood in the flat. Obviously, we had the deceased, we had the dead body. Um, I think I, it's hard to explain. in, in that you know, it's something that you you kind of get used to. You know, it's kind of like because you want to be professional. You know, you you kind of. You, yeah you just deal with what you what you see so like I say I've, I've been to you know far too many post-mortems that I'd even care to think of from from you know from from young children like babies to you know adults to teenage teenagers and things like that and and as I say when you when you see you know a deceased person you know it break it breaks my heart every time because like I say when I said earlier about you know how fragile life is that really brings it home and you know the forensic post mortems are not a nice place to see. You know, the pathologists do a fantastic job in obviously looking at the cause of death and things like that. But you know, it's heartbreaking because you know, behind that disease, there's, there's a family, there's a loved one, there's maybe you know, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, you know, children, and, and, it, and it's heartbreaking. So, but you do compensate, it. you work with specialist officers, you know, so we have forensic teams who again do a fantastic job. Look at the forensic elements. We have what with an homicide, we have what we call crime scene managers who who manage all the forensic aspects of an investigation. So they call on additional support services from um, forensic practitioners in what we used to call SOCOS or scenes crimes officers. They're now called forensic practitioners. Um, we have obviously photographers, we have obviously scientists that we call out to look at the um, blood pattern analysis for certain cases. So we would look at, you know, where the blood is on walls and on floors and whether it's airborne blood or splatter blood and, you know, if we can determine the actual sequence of events just from the, the scientific evidence. So, you know, when you work with these professionals and you see how professional they are, it, it kind of rubs off on you and you, you know, and as I say, when you ultimately, you know that you're doing a job, what, what, as long as you understand what you're doing it for and why you're doing it and ultimately it's, it's to help families, it's to get justice. Is, is obviously to provide answers it's to you know identify those responsible and if you know bring them to justice really and you know take you know bad people off the streets if, if they if they're gonna you know commit serious offenses or cause serious harm um but yeah you you, you kind of get used to it uh, over time um and as i say working within homicide you know like i say you, you are more you know you, you see it a lot often i suppose if i was you know a uniform officer who hasn't got that much exposure to it you know it might sort of shock you a little bit more but Because I've been doing it, you know, now for, say, just over 17 years, you know, and and, say doing every sort of role within homicide, you know, I'm personally now used to it. But certainly newer officers, younger, younger in service, it takes them a little bit of getting used to. Um, But, but we just remain professional all times.
0: One, you know, the, one of the unique elements of complex investigations is that often sometimes your investigations take you overseas and you have been, um, Received commendations, both judges commendations and detective chief superintendent commendations for your commitment to investigative ability, professionalism and leadership in a complex kidnap and robbery investigation involving the UK's first extradition from Afghanistan. Tell us about that investigation. It sounds fascinating.
1: So um, I didn't actually go to Afghanistan um, as much as I'd like to have done. And it was actually around the time of, 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 of the conflicts out there. So um, it it was a really challenging investigation because it involved um, some Asian businessmen who were involved in a property deal with some other Asian businessmen in Stoke Newington. And there was a dispute over money. So the two victims, who were brothers, were uh, basically lured to the business premises on the pretext of a business meeting. Whilst in there, um, they were assaulted by a guy called Anthony Malone, who's actually written various books around his uh, circumstances out in Afghanistan. And actually, I think actually covers the investigation and his role in the investigation in his book. Um, And he asked me to quote on that, but I I never did. But he was basically a hired help and he assorted the two brothers in in his business premises. They were kidnapped, they were threatened, they were seriously assorted. But it was a complex and challenging case because obviously it involved the business dealings between the two parties. But Anthony Malone quickly fled to Afghanistan quite quickly after the the, uh, kidnapping and the robbery in his sort. And so um, there there was a lengthy investigation. um, And um, ultimately, uh, he was then detained out in Afghanistan, again, for some kind of um, illegal business dealings, something to do with him trying to sell vehicles to Afghanistan people, or the, the Afghan government or, or, or army and so he was detained in afghanistan so we managed to um work with them and obviously managed to yeah get him extradited back to the uk and we had uh, a lengthy trial um and he was convicted and he was sentenced to sort of over seven years um for those offenses but he denied any knowledge it was it was a very challenging case because he he made a lot of claims about um working with sort of government agencies and secret services and things like that so we had to look into all of those sorts of things um i i, I know for a fact that he's he, i think he's recently gone out to afghanistan again um god knows why he'd want to put himself in those sort of in that sort of area in that sort of danger but um it was a really challenging investigation it's one that i'm proud of in that you know because of the challenges and it's and it's a really complex investigation and it it, it would take me a long time to go through everything but um, yeah, I'm proud to, to, that we got him back to the UK. Um, it was challenging, you know, persuading the victims to give evidence because, again, they were fearful for, um, for their—they con- were fearful that they would be in, in further danger if, you know, giving evidence. So we had to work with them. Um, there were other defendants as well involved that um, w- that were acquitted, um, but found guilty some sort of, sort of from minor offences, partly because of the way Anthony Malone acted throughout the trial. They basically blamed him as being like almost like the rogue uh hired help and that they they basically said that he was the one that you know kind of went off peace and used violence even though they, they didn't want that so it's something that um i don't necessarily agree with i think all all, all of them should have been convicted but um it, it was a really complex investigation i was also going to say i've also had the first ever uk extradition from st lucia which was um, a, a, a relation to a gang-related murder in Newham. Um, a, a boy called Champion Gander um was was stabbed and killed um by um where there was three three sort of suspects if you like that um basically had come across Champion um industry and it was almost like a rival gang related murder and um one of the suspects um fled the UK quite quickly after the murder, a boy called Devancey Clifford left the UK quite quickly after the murder. It was a challenge in the investigation because we had a, a big wall of silence and that was one of the things that's quite hard and difficult to to sort of get your head round. in that you know a lot of the cases we dealt with we, we come up against a wall of silence people are refusing to sort of tell us what had happened and in that particular case we had no sort of real direct witnesses who could name those responsible so we had to look at forensic evidence telephone evidence cctv evidence to try and prove who was responsible and there was there was three males involved in that murder but i say devonte clifford left the uk quite quickly afterwards. We, we knew that he was in St Lucia, but at that time we had no sort of extradition treaty with St Lucia. So I had to work with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Home Office and the Attorney General in at St Lucia and the Crown Prosecution Service Extradition Unit. And, and it took, you know, almost like a year and a half to persuade St Lucia to, to actually deal with this extradition. And as it happened, we, we managed to charge two of the males involved in the, in the murder in the UK um, and about a month before their trial was due to start, St Lucia actually acted on the, our extradition request and arrested Devontae out in St Lucia. And he was then extradited back to the UK, where we, where he stood trial with the other two. Um, and one of the boys in that case, a boy called Armani Lynch, was actually convicted of manslaughter of, of stabbing Champion um, because they, they were basically kind of fighting each other. But Champion was the victim. Um, and um, a boy called Armani Lynch was convicted of, of manslaughter stabbing him I think, about 13 times. Um, and, and that was, again, a really challenging investigation. You know, it, it kind of almost shows the determination of the team to get justice for the families. You know, we, we won't give up. We would try and do everything we can to get justice. and um, We would look at every opportunity we can and and do everything we can. And, and say, the team that I've worked with have, have, you know, always had that ethos and they would do everything they can to get justice for families.
0: One of the greatest challenges in homicide investigations, you know, is that first... 24, 48 hours of any investigation where you've got a number of conflicting priorities as to kind of what is important now, and when you're dealing with individuals that are fleeing the country just about immediately after they've committed these horrendous crimes – you know, it must be a great sense of achievement in working incredibly hard, as you said, over 12, 18 months working with the St. Lucian authorities and the Home Office and other government agencies in bringing individuals back to the UK and having them convicted of very serious crimes. There must be a real great sense of pride in the commitment that we've done to bring closure to families.
1: Yeah, like I say, it, it is that attitude of we will just never give up. You know, if, if people want to leave, um, leave the country, you know, um, we will always do everything we can to find them. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had other cases where we've done extraditions, but certainly those sort of two cases, the Afghanistan and St. Lucia, will, will always stick with me because of the, how difficult the investigations were. But like I say, it's, it's showing that commitment to the families. You know, the Champion Gander case, you know, his mum, Peggy. You know, she does some sort of work in the media around knife crime and in the community around knife crime and the effects knife crime had on her and her, you know, her other her other children as well. Because he he had um, sort of, um, you know, younger brother and sister, an older sister, and 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 it's it's that that's what drives you. It's it's knowing that you've got this grieving family who who want who looking for you for answers, and you are the only people that can give them that kind of almost like closure, and and that's what kind of drives me and my colleagues on. You know, that's why, you know, I'd work all the hours that I had to work, you know, I used to sometimes sleep in the office, sort of three or four days in a row, um, on particular some of the homicide cases I worked on, purely because there was this fire in me that kind of said, right, what do I need to do to solve this murder? What, what do I need to do? What can I do? What does the team need to do? How can we make it happen? How, you know, trying to do it as quickly as we can. And, you know, and and and, and that's kind of that determination. And, like I say, I've always had that fire in me and, you know, it, it, I, that will never leave me. So it's that kind of, I need to do this. I need to do it as quick as I can. Like, what do I need to do? What resources do I need? What what inquiries do we need to do? And, and that's something that I've tried to instill with the teams that I've worked in over the years, sort of as I've sort of risen up the ranks and try to sort of pass that on to sort of the less experienced people in that whenever you get a new investigation, you have to think, well, what do we need to do to do to solve this? You know, how quickly can we solve it? Not just you know ticking boxes and you know following like oh we have to do this 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 like there is no kind of almost like script in a way you know every case is different every case has its unique um challenges and that's you know what I've that's what I've loved around you know being a that's why I've always loved being a homicide detective because it's that that challenge of right how do we solve this how do we do it quickly what do I need to do and and it's and it's and it's I've I've loved sort of every second of it and you know I've, I've reached towards the end of my career now, but I can look back and say, from when I was a, a DS case officer or detective inspector or or DCI as an SIO, you know, every homicide case that I ever worked on, um, we identified um, virtually everybody that was responsible. And you know, in all those cases, you know, we everyone that sort of was, we believed was involved, was convicted, you know, I never had anyone acquitted of, 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 um, of like the whole, all charges. Um, and that's something I'm proud of, and you know, and obviously it's a, it's a massive team effort. It's not just me, but it's something that I'm proud of, and that I'd like to think that I may may have played a small part in in helping those investigations in whatever way.
0: It's quite extraordinary when you explain that the commitment that you have given to policing, in terms of as you recalled, they're sleeping in the office for sometimes two, three days at a time. And what we talk about in the podcast is is ordinary people doing extraordinary work. To enable you to do that, you must have an incredible supportive family behind you who haven't seen you for days on end because of your commitment to work. how How, how do you support family that are supporting you through you know some of the most incredible work that you've done over the past thirty years?
1: Um, I mean yeah, I'd say I've got a family that kind of have just allowed me to do whatever I need to do. I think they they now they understand what I'm like. Um, so like if we get a new homicide case they know that I'll be working that weekend or the following weekend or be working long hours in the evenings. Um, they know, depending on the type of case, you know, um, some cases are solved quite quickly. Um, you know, sometimes we, we identify and arrest people straight away. And I've had cases where I've been involved in where we've arrested people straight away, but even those cases, they had their own challenges. Um, but you know, say that for me, the difficult ones are where, where we have unknown suspects and things like that. And they know that I want to do everything I can. And, um, I'm, I'm, Yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I'm allowed to do it. But for me, and this is probably going to sound really selfish in that, like I say, I feel like I have to do everything I can to solve that murder. And yeah. I then hopefully like kind of bring people with me to a degree in that like I will support the people I work with, whether to so whichever rank or role I was in, I would support people with me. I would hopefully, you know, help them if I had to do extra work to help them because they were over, under pressure and things like that. Obviously, as I've, as I've reached, you know, to become a senior investigating officer, of the SIO, leading the investigations and creating the strategies and the directions and things like that, and setting the priorities each day. Again, you know, it, I'm, I've been able to, you know, use my experience of, of working on all those different um, ranks and roles within the homicide command that, you know, that I, I, I've i been there, I've done it. So if someone comes to me with a problem around forensics or CCB, I, I can sort of tell them, well, this is what we need to do, this is how we need to do it. And, you know, I, I kind of almost like go into a blinkered mode in that when I get a new homicide case, that's all I focus on. You know, my outside life or my life, outside, yeah, I don't kind of think about that too much. Um, certainly in, a, in the first, you know, week or two weeks or, or hell, you know, whatever it is until, you know, hopefully we've identified those responsible and arrested them um, uh, and, and, you know, charged them. Once, you know, once we charge people, whilst the work, that just doesn't stop, and in some cases, it actually becomes a lot more because then you still have to get the evidence, and the, the clock is ticking around getting these cases to court, and there'll be sort of tight court deadlines. You know, before COVID, we had we had six months before once you charge somebody, you had six months before that had to be in trial. Obviously, COVID um and all the problems there has obviously delayed trials, um, and there's now lots of cases backed up in the criminal justice system, so you have a bit longer but you know there's always unfortunately there's always new cases so you know homicide teams at the moment in london are, are averaging around 10 to 15 homicide cases that are that dealing with any one time um, and you know there's, there's 20 homicide teams in london at the moment and, and they're all managing around 10 to 15 homicide cases some teams have more some teams have cases that are legacy cases that they've had for a long time which have not been solved but those cases are still there and they're in the background and you know, if, if new evidence comes to light, or if there's work that can be done, that will be done. But, you know, as I say, the, the, the officers that work within, you know, specialist crime that, I've, that I'm in, and mean hom- homicide, you know, um, and Trident and firearms, which is, where, which is where I'm at the moment, you know, they are incredibly dedicated um, to getting justice for people. And, you know, yeah, so I've, I've been very fortunate that I, you know, my, my, family and extended family you know and, and they look at it they look at it now and they're, they're proud of of you know what i've achieved um throughout my career you know i don't do it for accolades or anything like that i do it for the families you know i don't that's mm. what drives me it's for the families it's it's to help the families um and that's you know that's my that's me personally saying that you know other people might have other motives you know but i for me it's, it's helping the families and that's what's driven me throughout my career
0: Let, let's talk about the Karen Peters homicide uh, in August 2018 again another complex case involving a lot of moving parts family members uh, and some really great challenges that you faced but uh, were able to overcome
1: yeah so, so again this is another case that's that's kind of stuck with me and will always stick with me partly because you know Karen Peter was a very loving mother of, of three daughters and Um, yeah at the time of the murder on the 2nd of August 2018 she was living at home uh, with her partner Thomas Peter Um, they'd had a a rocky relationship Um, it's fair to say that Thomas Peter had been having um, various affairs um, throughout sort of their relationship and I think the the marriage was breaking down um, if I'm honest through the evidence that we gathered during the investigation it was was clear that the relationship was breaking down but what what happened was that on in the early hours of the second of August, um, Karen and Thomas um, were in their marital uh, marital bedroom um, in their house in in, in in Romford in Essex, and we still don't know exactly why it happened, but there was some suggestion there, there was some evidence that there was an argument out in the garden at about four or five o'clock in the morning, and then what happened is what what then happened is that Thomas Peter basically strangled. Karen um we believe in the marital bedroom whilst the three daughters were in the house at the same time um and in particular he had two daughters in a bedroom next to her and the youngest daughter was only 13 at the time um they were woken about 5:40 a.m. to the sounds of basically um Karen being attacked and they could hear muffled screaming so the daughters the three daughters and say the youngest only 13 the others i think was um 20 21 but they basically were sort of called out saying what's going on and Thomas Peter would basically say, "Oh, nothing," and then then the girls became obviously scared, and they said, "Well, where's Mum?" And I always remember this. They were saying, "We're like, where's Mum?" And he coldly said to them, "Oh, she's gone. She's gone out for a walk." And then you know, a short while later, they they've noticed that Mum's mobile phone and house keys are still downstairs in the in the hallway, and um, the two eldest daughters went outside to try and see if they could see Mum, and and sort of you know. Think about calling for help and calling the police, and then the thirteen-year-old basically hears something being dragged from the marital bedroom to another bedroom, a spare bedroom next door. And um, it transpired that that was Karen that he was dragging from one from the marital bedroom to the spare bedroom next door. He later tried to claim it was a, a suitcase, but it was Karen. Um, then what he did is he set fire to Karen. Okay. Uh, he would later claim in court. That he was lighting some candles around Karen's body once he once he realised that she wasn't moving, um, but there was no evidence of candles being burnt in 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 from the forensic evidence point of view there was no evidence of candles being burnt. It was clear he tried to set fire to her. So the girls then basically left the house. They called police. Um, three incredibly brave binmen were were doing their bin rounds they see the fire and see the girls. So they go into the, the house. Uh, they try to go upstairs and they come across Thomas Peter and he basically sort of ushers them out, says, nothing's going on, you know, get out of my house. And then, um, so they get pushed out. And then the next door neighbor, again, being woken up to all this commotion, he tries to go into the house. And again, Thomas then ushers him outside the house and, um, Shortly thereafter, because of the, the basically the fire, the fire brigade turn up, and when they enter the house, um, Thomas Peter is still there. Uh, they speak to the daughters, who obviously panicking at this time in, in tears. And then I always remember this because it's all on sort of body worn video. In that, um, Karen's parents turn up as well, and so the fire brigade go into the house, and behind a locked door, they find Karen um, obviously deceased, but also he set fire to her. Um, love her, love her sort of body parts and also around her head um, and ultimately the pathologist said that she was strangled um, and I always remember this because it was on body one video but the grandmother so that so Karen's mother that had arrived when Thomas was sort of outside speaking to the police um, denying anything denying any knowledge of what had happened denying knowing where Karen was you know, the, the mother was basically begging him, saying, where's Karen? What have you done to my daughter? Where is she? And he was denying it, cold as cold as anything, denying any knowledge of where Karen was. Yet yeah, he'd strangled her in the middle of the bedroom, dragged her to the bedroom next door, locked her in the room and set fire to her. Um, it was a challenging investigation because the daughters, obviously, they were key witnesses, so they were being interviewed. And something that will stick with me forever is how incredibly brave they were. All three of them, because yeah. of what had happened, what they just witnessed and what they just come across. Bear in mind, it's their own mother and their own father. They were unbelievable. They were incredible. They were, you know, they gave phenomenal, you know, evidence um, initially of, of obviously in their interviews of what had happened. Um, so we we did a detailed investigation. We obviously conducted a lot of forensic examinations at the house. We found that he'd extended his garage, because um, he was a builder by trade. He'd built sort of um, wardrobes in his garage where he would keep all his spare clothes. We discovered that he would go away for like long weekends without the family. And, and as I say, I believe he was having various affairs throughout the country. Um, I believe that Karen had basically told him that she wanted to divorce. And what, what had actually happened is um, they were they were married, I believe, between 1994 and 2010 um, in their first marriage. But then they split up but then, and got divorced in, in on the 16th of September, 2010. But then they got remarried um, in February, 2012. Um, but as I say, by the time of, of, of 2018, like I say, I believe he was having many affairs and that she basically decided to end end uh, the, the marriage. Um, we also discovered evidence that he took out a life insurance policy shortly before the murder in her name um, for sort of over 300,000 pounds. So I believe that was potentially um, Again, part, part motive for what he tried to do in, in, in murdering her, trying to claim the life insurance policy. Um, but again, one of the difficult things is that he denied, he denied the murder. So he had to have a trial and he forced his daughters to give evidence in the trial. And and as I say, they were incredible. They were unbelievably brave, giving, giving evidence at, at the trial um, of obviously what they'd seen that day, what they'd heard, what they said to, to their dad you know, begging their dad to let, tell them where mum was, you know, it, it is, it's heartbreaking. It is really heartbreaking and it's one of those cases that that will stay with me forever. So, um, you know, the trial commenced sort of between January um, and February 2019 um, and he was, he was found guilty of, of, of murder and arson um, and 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 he was um, sentenced to 25 years in prison, life imprisonment with a minimum of 25 years. And he also got seven years imprisonment to for being Karen for the arson. But he, but he forced everyone to have a trial. He wouldn't accept his guilt. He, he tried to deny it. He even denied at one point strangling Karen, even though the pathologist gave evidence that he'd strangled Karen um, in, in the bedroom. Um, or he strangled Karen. He tried to claim that Karen had basically run onto his hand. He'd had his hand held open and that she'd run, run onto it and somehow had strangled herself on his hand. That was kind of his defence. And it was shocking and bizarre that, you know, because that wasn't even the, 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 the evidence, if you like, from the pathologist. The pathologist clearly said, you know, to strangle somebody, you have to sort of almost like grip their neck for, for you know, for quite a considerable period of time. Period of time. Uh, and he tries to claim that Karen had just run onto his hand. And so, you know, again, when I go back to the family, it's it's the family, it's Karen's parents that I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for. It's the, And it's the three brave, incredible daughters you know um you know how uh, uh, my heart goes out to them about what what they went through you know not only if they obviously they've lost their mum but they've lost their dad you know to prison for a long time um i, I hope that they are you know i we, we don't have much contact with families once once the case ends um obviously if there's anything that we can support them with we will and we'll offer them any support but then you have organizations like victim support who sometimes provide extended sort of support after after the cases conclude but you know, I, I just hope that the they're the, the sort of living their best lives as best they can. But it's one of those horrible cases um, that you just um, t- t- just touches you and will always stay with you.
0: One of the incredible things was, is the eldest daughter in her victim impact statement said, I always thought dad was our protector, that he would protect us from the outside world. The irony, it was him we needed protecting from and he took our mother from us. And, and what always amazes me is that people must think they'll get away with these crimes you know this is horrific you know what, what in your experience what do you think goes through these people's minds to think that what they're doing nobody will find out about so
1: yeah so in my experience it's, it's it's extremely rare for anybody to plead guilty to murder i think i may have had it maybe once or twice in my career where somebody's actually pleaded guilty to murder where you know even though whether the evidence is you know so overwhelming um people will try everything they can to, to to get away with it basically they'll they'll you know see they'll speak to their legal teams they'll they'll look at whether they can get any psychiatric reports or or defense expert reports or whether they'll look at the police procedures to see if there's been any issues around police disclosure or police um procedures and and they will try every trick um to to, to get away with it because What's the alternative that they're going to spend? You know, if you get convicted of murder, you're going to get life imprisonment with whatever the minimum term is that the judge sets, depending on the guidelines. So, in my experience, it's very, very rare for people to plead guilty to murder. Sometimes we get, in, in homicide cases and murder cases, sometimes we get offers of. Manslaughter. So people might say, "Well, you know, whilst we didn't intend to kill or tend to cause serious harm, we did accept we killed them, so we plead guilty to manslaughter." But you know, in our in those cases where the evidence is clearly, you know, this is murder, we would obviously reject that, and we would obviously have a trial on the facts for the murder, in, in hope that the jury would obviously agree with with the crown and the, and the police's evidence. But yeah, I mean, the impact statements for me are always, uh, you know, are heartbreaking. You know, like I say said, said earlier, you know. I get very emotionally attached to the cases whether i'm case officer or the di investigating officer or the sio um dci and you know i've i've shed i've cried in, in at the end of court cases when i'm listening to impact statements whether they're read by the family themselves or or by the barrister because you you know the the you know the people that's who, who's affected and you know like i say i you know my heart breaks for them um it generally does in every case i've had my heart breaks for them because you know that their lives have been destroyed by the actions of these individuals. Um, but for, for me in particular, for Hip in this particular case with Thomas Peter, he was so cold. It was chilling. It was almost chilling how cold he was about his own daughters and about, you know, what he'd done to Karen. He was just so cold and he denied it, even though the evidence was overwhelming. You know, there the was no alternative. There was no defense for what he'd done. You know, she was a lot smaller in, him in stature you know she wasn't a threat to him um and, 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 and yeah so it's it, as i say it always goes back to the, the the people that are left behind the, the you know the children and, and certainly in his case you know karen's um you know parents um who i met you know numerous times and and you know um i feel so sorry for
0: it, it one of the um summing up points the judge made in that trial uh, in in sentencing peter for life and ordering he serve a minimum term of twenty five years behind bars he said you're an arrogant egotistical chauvinistic and controlling bully uh, by calling her a bad mother was an outrageous lie that she was as you all well know she was an outstanding mother one of the questions i wanted to 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 put to you and to other investigators is that you spend so much time with these families and especially these young these young girls who've lost their mother is it normal for officers to check in with them two three years down the line after a case is closed to see how they are to touch base or is it once the case is finalized in court that's kind of a a line under the sand and you have to move on to the next job i think um in in reality because there
1: unfortunately there's so many cases it's very very difficult to to stay in contact with with families um obviously if cases are finished at, at court like i said there's various support services that um that obviously offer support going forward, especially if somebody's then serving a long sentence in prison, you know the probation service are, are, are legally in duty bound to contact the families if somebody then you to be released from prison. Um, you know, I, I occasionally you, you might get a phone call from the family or an email from from a family but also I think some families prefer the closure and, and don't want to have contact with the officers involved because it's almost like a reminder of what happened. and 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 that's that's what i've had in my experience you know i've maybe i could probably count on one hand the amount of families that i've either been in contact with or stay in contact with in in, in some capacity um you know so yeah but i think a lot of families actually like that distance because they don't want the constant reminder of what hap- what's happened and they you know try to rebuild their lives as best as possible but you know we always say to the families when we do sort of like our what we call exit meetings once we once the investigation is concluded and the family as officer, has you know, explained the process following going on forward around you know victim support and the you know, probation service. You know if the families do have any issues they can contact us, but it is rare that they, they would do, but like I say myself and I know colleagues as well, you know, they always think of these cases and you know they even discuss sometimes in the office oh, I wonder how this family's doing or how this person's doing you know or or they might hear through you know another third party or you know what's happened whether someone's had a child or you know whatever and you think oh wow well, that's good i'm glad they're kind of trying to rebuild their lives as best as possible
0: it's quite incredible and uh i'm blown away by um the challenges that you've had to overcome in dealing with just a few of those examples that you've given us over your 30-year career in the met as a chief inspector a detective chief inspector i should say so you're as i say perry your career is coming to an end but you're moving on to see, to some fantastic work outside of policing are you able to tell us what you're going to be doing once you hand in your warrant card and move on to the next chapter of your life
1: yeah so it's it's not been an easy decision to sort of retire so i've, I've reached the point where when i joined the police it was almost like seen as a 30 year career so i've, I've kind of reached that point and, I, and it's kind of a, a decision i've not made easily um but yeah i've decided that you know i've 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 had a fantastic career and um, it's time for like new adventures. So I've, I've actually not told many people what I'm going to do next, but um, whilst I've obviously been considering my retirement, um, I've had a number of interviews for various roles and I've been offered two fantastic opportunities. Um, and one opportunity that I've I've decided to accept is um, I'm going to be the security manager for Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, um, which for me, is is like almost like another dream role, you know, like having that dream of always wanting to be a police officer. Um, I support Tottenham. Um, I'm a fan and I applied for the role. I had no expectations of getting the role. I had didn't know anybody who worked for Tottenham at the time. So I had no one that I could speak to around the role. Um, I, I used the, uh, uh the services of LinkedIn, if you like, to connect with people in the football industry and spoke to some fantastic people Um, at some fantastic football clubs, Man City, Chelsea, uh, Aston Villa, Nottingham Forest, who gave me an insight into their role and what they do at their clubs, which helped me. But yeah, so I've been offered the role of uh, security manager at Tottenham Football Club. So I actually retire in the police on the 2nd of January um, next year, uh, 2023. And I actually start my next job the next day. It's the 3rd of January. So I've had some time off. I have had some time off, though, between now and um obviously retirement. So I've got you know quite a bit of leave that I've been trying to use up between sort of now and then. So but yeah, I, I retire from police on the second of January and I start my new role at Tottenham Hotspur Football Club on the third of January. And it's 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 again it's a proud moment for me um and my family. You know, um, you know, I've got lots of family and friends that are, you know, Tottenham and football fans and having the opportunity to sort of say that the stadium is now my office, you know, that that new world class stadium that's been built is now my new office. And, you know, I've been around there a few times recently. I was even there last last night for the Tyson Fury fight. I got invited to come and watch as a guest to kind of watch the security arrangements and see what's done. And, you know, I was kind of just constantly smiling. You know, my my, my face hurts by smiling so much. It's it's a fantastic opportunity. There's a lot to learn. You know, I've not necessarily done security in that way before. I've done lots of like planning and, operate, plan and organizing and operations and things like that. And there's a lot to learn. But, you know, there's some fantastic people that work there who I'm, I'm so excited to, to be learning from. And yeah, I, I can't wait to get started.
0: Well, Perry, the last hour has been quite incredible and uh, it's been an absolute privilege to hear just a snippet of the uh, stories and the investigations that you have led in and taken part in, which have ultimately given a voice to victims of some very, very serious crimes. So, uh, on behalf of my colleagues and I, you have what just under four weeks of, re- of service remaining. Thank you ever so much for your service, your dedication, and your support to families right across London. Uh, and on behalf of uh, my team uh, on the podcast, we wish you all the very best for the future. And uh, I'm sure your family look forward to seeing a bit more of Perry around the home, if not being away from home on Saturday afternoons whilst Tottenham are playing teams in the Premier League.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for the time to uh, talk about my career. Like I've had a fantastic career. I'm so proud of, of of the work that I've done with and the people I've worked with. You know, that's what, that's what makes it. It's the colleagues. And, you know, we've all gone through sort of traumatic incidents together. But like I've sort of said throughout this sort of podcast, it's, it's working together to, to try and help the people. And that, and that's the thing that I, I think I'll miss. I'll miss the colleagues that I work with, because I've worked with some phenomenal people um, who have basically helped make me the man I am today. So I'm incredibly grateful and, and thank you for this opportunity.
0: No, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, your departure from the Metropolitan Police, I'm sure, will be felt. Uh, very far and wide. But uh, on the flip side, Tottenham Hotspur have gained uh, an invaluable resource and somebody who I know will provide them with the best level of expertise in security and risk management I think they could probably find. So again, wishing you all the best of luck and thank you very much for, for, for showing up to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Protect and Serve is a mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn-Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.